Well, hello and welcome to the Saints Church Podcast. My name is Dave and I just want to invite you to settle in with a cup of tea or coffee or water or whatever you prefer and get ready to take in a wonderful word by our very own pastor, Brett Esslinger. For those of you who don't know who we are, uh, Desiree and I, uh, we planted Engage and this January it will be nine years ago, which is a crazy crazy thought and uh, from uh, a movie theater to a warehouse for like a month uh, to Phil's house at Christmas one Sunday I can just tell stories now Uh, one Sunday in like the first year of the church I think we our lease was ending at the movie theater we were in and they were kicking us out. They had got bought in by another company, and so they wanted to do things differently. And uh, right before Christmas, so we just decided, well, the church was small enough at the time. We're just going to, and Phil's house was very large at the time. And so we're like, hey, listen, do I need to hold this closer? What do we got to do here? We're all right. We don't know. I'll just stand back here. Um, And uh, so we just decided to go have waffles at Phil's house. Uh, you know, on Sunday. So maybe uh, for the nine-year anniversary, we'll just come all back over to Phil's house and have waffles at Phil's. And uh, there's nothing better than waffles at Phil's house. Uh, two years ago, the Lord changed the trajectory of our church and our lives. Um, God has always put a dream in our hearts to reach this region and not, and not to do that in a small way. But we have also always lived from this position where we just follow Jesus one step at a time. We don't always know what's next for us. We just, we're just crazy enough to believe that if he leads us into this next step, that we're just going to take it. And so two years ago, uh, Desiree and I also became leaders at what, what was uh, WECA, West Seventh Christian Assembly, what is now St. Church Glastonbury. And that changed the direction of our church. But the amazing thing is that God is faithful, and it's the right things at the right times. Um, I don't know why I'm telling you the history, but I feel like I just need to do that today. Uh, And then we tried in our own ability to get a bigger building. So for those of you who are on the journey, one time we had a 4,000 square foot total, not auditorium, total 4,000 square foot uh, building in a strip mall on King Street in Spruce Grove. And we did three services there on a Sunday. And uh, the funny thing is that entire church footprint is smaller than this room. <laughs> and God was faithful. Then we launched in Stony Plain at Carrar at the dance studio, and we had the two locations. And, and then we were, we were like feeling like the Lord would say, it's time to take another step forward. It's time to take another step forward. And so as you take that step forward, we're like, okay, well, we need to get a building. So we tried to get a building in the warehouse in the industrial area in Spruce Grove. And uh, we were going to lease it for seven years. And the build-out cost... The build-out cost on that building was going to be $350,000 to build it out, to, to make it a church. And we're like, wow, okay. So we started that campaign in Heart for the House, the first one that we did there, and started to believe God for that. And, of course, the deal fell through, and it didn't materialize. And so we let our lease go in Spruce Grove. So we had, you know, the West End location, and then we were out in Stony Plain at Carrar. And we're like, God, what is next for us? Because how many know that oftentimes we create our own plan uh, for how God should work? And it's oftentimes pales in comparison to what he has planned. 
right? We try and figure out a plan or a strategy or direction, and it's good to be prepared. I'm a plan, like, it's good to be prepared. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. But sometimes uh, I'm just wondering, when was the last time you left some room in your life's plan for Jesus to move? for him to work, for, for a miracle to happen? Or, or are you moving along and plotting it out as if you're holding it together when in reality Jesus is holding it all together? And so we went into COVID with, with no building to call our own and, and things kind of shut down and we went online as, you know, we all got crazy. But right through COVID, we get a phone call from Hope Christian Reformed Church. And they said, hey, can we meet you? And I said, sure. So Pastor Jeremy and I went for a meeting here in the church basement. And they asked if we'd want to buy the building. And we said, uh, no bank is going to give us a mortgage in COVID. Church, banks don't like to give churches mortgage, mortgages, period, let alone in COVID. And so we're like, okay. So we just kept talking. We got it value, like we got the valuation done. And then... We came back and, and we gathered together, and these meetings were always so kind and generous uh, in nature. And Hope Christian Reform said, "Okay, we're gonna, we want to sell you the church for half of fair market value." So the church in five acres, and we're like, "Okay." And so they had a number in mind, but I also had a number in mind. So I said, "Here's what I think it would be," and they asked us to leave just for 10 minutes while they talked. But in the parking lot, I was like, Pastor Jeremy, I'm sorry. I think I ruined this for you. And uh, they came back and they accepted that number. And that number was $350,000. So when I come up with a plan, I get something temporary for seven years that I have to invest $350,000 into. When we trust Jesus, and we live through those uncomfortable moments, those difficult moments of not knowing, of not having what we think we need in, in the right moment. He comes along and out of nowhere gives you something so far beyond what you could ever ask, think, imagine, or dream for the same amount of money. And he goes, just watch what I could do if you would trust me. Today, I just want to point our eyes towards Jesus and just say, I wonder what could happen in your life and in my life if we just set our eyes on Jesus and we trusted what he could do. We trusted what he could do. See, when you, when you come to church, I just got this question for you and for us, really. What do you expect? Like, what do you expect to happen? I think we all have a set of expectations when we come to church. Like, uh, you know, for me, I didn't buy a coffee because I knew there was going to be coffee, you know? Like, there's going to be coffee here. I'm thankful there's always coffee, you know? Uh, I, have that, I, I have an expectation that I'm going to see some, some friendly faces, some, some faces that, that we love and people that we love. I, I expect that it's going to be warm. I expect that we're going to worship. I expect somebody is going to preach, uh, preach the word of God, that the Bible will be taught. I have those sets of expectations. But, but what, what else are you expecting? Because what we just read earlier today is Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He holds the universe together. He is supreme over everything in the universe. So I would just like to submit to you and suggest today that when Jesus shows up, Jesus changes everything. 
And so when I show up on a Sunday, I get, we are here to gather together to lift up the name of Jesus, that everything begins to change. And it's different than worshiping or being alone together. Why? Because there is a corporate anointing that happens. There's something significant that happens when the people of God gather together. In Psalm 22, verse 3, it says that God, who is the Holy One, inhabits or dwells or is enthroned in the praises of his people. That's Psalm 22, verse 3. So when we gather together and we sing, we don't just sing to warm up to a message or to feel good or to have Christian karaoke. We sing to lift up the name of Jesus. And as we lift up the name of Jesus, he is enthroned and he dwells and he inhabits our praise. As he inhabits our praise, uh, that word inhabit in the original Hebrew also means to sit down. And you're kind of like... That's kind of weird. Jesus comes in and he sits down. Yeah, he comes in and he sits down on the throne of our lives. And as we worship, we slip off the chair that we've been occupying from Monday through Saturday. And we're like, oh, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to give you some room to work. I'm going to trust you. Would you come and move? And when the people of God start to lift up the name of Jesus, Jesus takes his rightful place in our gathering, we redirect our attention and our eyes and we set them on him and everything changes. It's not that he isn't with you, he is always with you. It's that our awareness changes. We become aware of his presence. You know, there's something special that happens when the people of God worship, because when the people of God worship, it, again, it's not just about a bunch of people getting in a room singing songs. See, something amazing happens, something incredible happens. You see in Ephesians chapter 6, when he talks about picking up a, a shield of faith, he, that's what the Apostle Paul starts describing our kind of faith journey. He says, listen, you got to put on all these different things, and he's talking about different attributes, and he talks about the shield of faith. And for the longest time, I thought it was this little circle shield you know, this little kind of circle shield thing that you see in the movies, like Spartacus or whatever, uh, like that kind of vibe. And I'm like, that's not what it is. What it was was like a big piece of wall. It was like two feet by like, it was like four feet by two feet. And it was kind of a wall and they could interlock and they could connect together so that they could create this maneuver uh, called the testudo where they would create a shield wall and they could call for that and there'd be a shield wall that would happen. So the picture is this, that when we gather together and we lift up the name of Jesus, we lift up our shield of faith, we join together our faith in this atmosphere and there is a wall of protection that goes up. There's a wall of protection that goes up because there's some of us who have the strength and the faith and the faith and the courage when we come here on a Sunday morning to say, you know, tonight, today I'm, I'm going to put my shield up and I'm going to create an atmosphere that's safe for anyone who's hurting, for anyone who's searching, for anyone who needs healing. I'm not just coming to sing. I'm coming to lock my faith together and to say, you know what, today I got you. I got your back. I'm covering you so you can come in here and you can be safe from whatever is trying to chase you down when we gather together and we lift up the name of Jesus come on it's all right you can clap you can shout you can laugh or cheer whatever it is we do here Uh, you can do those things but the reality is when we lift up the name of Jesus we lift up his name but then we have a responsibility to one another to lift up that shield of faith says I got you today now here's the amazing thing when you look across the room and this is We're talking about family vibes. And there is a need in church to be known. 
we are known by God. We have the ability, you know, because he made us. He, he knows us. He knits us together, it says in Psalm 139. He knows every detail of our lives. He knows us. But there's something deeper that is supposed to happen amongst the believers, amongst the community. There's supposed to be this friendship, this connection, this relationship. This isn't, and this shouldn't be a place that you can slip in and slip out of. Now, I must admit, we're not always great at this. Most churches, lots of churches are friendly, but most of the times we just kind of stop there, right? We're like, hey, hi, and then we walk by. I wonder what might happen if we didn't just open up our church buildings, if we opened up our lives to one another. Because then when I see Lauren come in here and she starts worshiping and I know what Lauren's going through and I know what's happening because we're in each other's lives. I know what Matt and Lauren are, are, are wrestling with and I see them lifting up the name of Jesus and I might not be quite feeling or I might be feel like I'm not there today. I go, wow, if they, can, if they can worship in spite of what they're facing, then man, I can get my hands up and I can lift up the name of Jesus because if, if, that, if they've got that kind of faith today, it lifts my spirits. See, being known and loved by a community actually starts to build your faith because all of a sudden you're like, wow, I know what they're facing and I know what they're facing, but then here's where it starts flipping. Not only do I know what they're facing, but I know the miracles that God is doing in their life. I know the things that are happening. I know that things are changing. I know that things are shifting. And so there's some weeks where you might see someone come in and you know that they're going through it. And you're like, you know what? I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go extra today because I gotta I gotta take care of, I gotta cover my brother and sister. We're gonna carry them into the presence of Jesus, whatever we gotta do. You know, in the beginning of Mark, there's these four guys uh, who, whose friend was paralyzed, and he was on a, it like They're like, okay, uh, we got to get him to Jesus. Jesus is at this house. They put him on a mat. They carry him on a mat. And I just always imagined Phil was one of those guys. <laughs> like, Phil's that kind of guy. He's like, listen, we're going to get in. And you get to the house, and you can't get in. And he tries to walk with authority. He just, like, walks right in. They're like, sir, you can't enter in here. He's like, but I'm Uncle Phil. They don't let him in. And so he's like, listen, I got a plan. What's the plan? Well, we're going to cut a hole in the roof. We'll submit an insurance claim later. We're going we're gonna to cut a hole in the roof. And so they rig up something to get this guy up on a roof, and they cut a hole, and they drop him in front of Jesus, and all of a sudden, he's healed. Listen, there's some days that you come to church that you're the guy on the mat, and there's some days that you come to church and you're carrying somebody on a mat. But everyone walks out changed because we saw what Jesus could do. I wonder what might happen in our community if we were known and loved, if we let our guard down. You know, the greatest phenomena in Christian circles is we love to pray for everybody and all their needs and know all the details. But when it's our turn, we're like, no, but this matters private unspoken but if it remains unspoken how can we cover you how can we walk with you how can we pray for you we don't have to expose everything at all times we you know you can trust is earned all those things but i wonder what might happen if there's more people on your team, I wonder what might happen if you realized that you didn't have to go through this season by yourself. That somebody loved you and cared for you. Why don't we jump into the Bible, Mark chapter five. 
We're going to hang out here for most of the time. Jesus got in the boat. This is verse 21. Thanks, Nick, for hooking us up with the scriptures. Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. This is classic Brett where we get to one verse in and we've got 24 to go and I'm just going to stop. Jairus is that kind of guy that is at church every Sunday. He's a leader in the Jewish local synagogue. He was a volunteer, so he showed up. He's one of those guys who's a team leader. He's the guy that you always see, the guy that always greets you at the door, probably the guy who always gives you a hug, the guy who's there to help you move, and the guy that you call when you're renovating the church. That's just the kind of guy that he is. He's, he's just that guy. Everybody knows and loves Jairus. They know that he's a leader in the community. And, and But here's the interesting thing. As the leader of that religious Jewish synagogue, a, 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 a lay leader, a volunteer, there was this responsibility that fell on the shoulders of, of, of the leaders at those times to assess any and all claims that somebody might make about being the Messiah. That was a part of the job. You're trying to discern. You're trying to go, is this real? Is this right? And so they've all heard by this point of this guy named Jesus. Now, Jesus at this point is not making claims to be Messiah, but others are making those claims about him. So when you think about the mindset or the frame, uh, uh, the, the, the state of mind that Jairus would have been in is that he would have been by nature skeptical. He would be by nature skeptical going, okay, is this another scammer? Like, who is this guy? He's maybe just trying to build his own ministry. He's trying to raise money. We don't know what he's here. Guys, let's cool the jets on thinking that he's the Messiah. And so, so that's the kind of guy that Jairus is. But then this happens. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Come on, I tell you that when things get desperate, your skepticism kind of starts to change a little bit. You're like, listen, I've tried everything. I've done everything else. And listen, if Jesus can change everything, then I'm going to show up in here and I'm going to see if Jesus can change everything. So somebody who was a gatekeeper, guardian, skeptic is now falling at the feet of Jesus because he's in the midst of a desperate situation. Jesus went with him and all the people following, uh, crowding around him. Now, as Jesus traveled, he, he traveled about three miles an hour, whatever speed you could walk at. But how many know that when you're like in a really crowded place, you don't move all that fast? You know, remember back in the day when you could go to like a hockey game or a football game or some kind of mass gathering, and there's that moment in the concourse where everybody's leaving at the same time, and you leave it about like a half step at a time? That's how Jesus traveled. So many people were crowding around. So many people were just like, I just want to be near him. Everyone wanted to have a moment of conversation or maybe just like, hey, uh, I'm Brett. Going to meet you. Read my soul. <laughs> Say something encouraging to me. You know, you just wanted to get into close proximity. So everyone's crowding around. And listen, uh, if I'm Jairus, I'm like, let's go. 
My daughter is dying. I'm here on a purpose. Let's move. Could we have any volunteers clear the path? This is a poorly organized gathering. Can somebody clear a way, clear a lane? Can somebody run ahead saying, Jesus needs to move faster. Jesus, we're on a timeline, Jesus Christ. We need to keep moving. Let's move it forward. Move. Save your conversations for later. My daughter is dying. <laughs> The only way that I can, I can communicate the feeling is, you know that moment when your alarm didn't go off and you've got an important meeting, maybe it's a test for school, you've all had this nightmare, and if you're anything like me, you jump in your car and you throw it in Google, and it's showing way past time, but at the same time you get in and you're like, I could beat that. I can, I, I, I can, I can beat that. And then you start driving very aggressively. And then something happens to me. This probably doesn't happen to you. But I'm like, move! And it's like someone's grandma. And I'm aggressively yelling. But I don't make gestures, but I do engage in a full eye contact moment where I'm like... You have to express... It's, it's now that, you know, being a dad, I just have to express that I'm not angry. I'm just disappointed in you. Right? It's like, come on, like, get out of my way. And so Jairus has those same feelings. He's like, let's go. But within that crowd, a woman had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she spent everything she had to pay for them. But she had gotten no better. So she did every treatment. She signed up for every trial, did every test, got no better. In fact, she got worse. She had heard about Jesus. She heard about Jesus. She came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. If you've been in church, you've heard this probably more times than you can count. And there's something romantic, not in the relational way, but just in the kind of movie magic kind of way of this person coming up through a crowd and grabbing at the hem of his garment. And she's, you know, it's just like, wow, movie magic. Except do you realize the reason she reached at the hem of his robe is because she didn't think that she was worthy for him to even make eye contact. See, for someone in this society, in this day and age, in the, in the day which they were living, they were living underneath the old covenant, which is where the Old Testament falls under largely before Jesus died and was resurrected. And so they lived according to those traditions and those patterns. And so uh, when a woman was bleeding, she was considered ceremonially unclean. So this woman was ceremonially unclean for 12 years, which means that any person that came into contact with her. So we know something about COVID and we know something about social distancing and we know something about keeping our distance and we know something about wearing a mask. But could you imagine the type of isolation and the types of games that it would play with your head if you knew that every single time you came near somebody, you had, declare, you had to declare yourself to be unclean. And if they touched you, they'd have to go into quarantine for seven days. 
they got to go wash themselves. They have to go through a ritual, a procedure for them to be clean. So think about minimal physical human touch for not a year or 18 months, but for 12 years. Think about walking into a crowd and every time you walk into a room, everybody scatters because they know that there's something wrong with you. Think about you doing everything that you can to, to see that it gets fixed, but you knowing that there's no answer. Can you think about being so desperate that you decide, you know what? It doesn't matter about the rules. It doesn't matter about what anyone says. So when she's moving her way through the crowd, every single person she's touching is unclean and she doesn't care. And she's not saying it because she's like, you know what? Whatever with this social construct, I'm in desperation mode and I just need to get to Jesus. But I can't, I don't even have the courage to ask him to pray for me because I, I don't even think that I'm worthy to be loved. She didn't even think that she could touch his back. She touched the bottom of his robe. The bottom. Like, like someone takes a swipe at the hem on your pants. And she's just thinking, why not? <laughs> she thought to herself, Verse 28, if I can just touch the robe, I will be healed. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Immediately. She could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Now, if you're her in that moment, you're like, you're probably wanting to scream on the outside, but you realize what you had just done. And you're like, okay, uh, well, I'm just going to slip out of here now because I came for what I want, and I'm going to throw a party at home, and I'm, everything's different now. Uh, I'm just going to slip away. Nobody's going to know. No, nobody's going to know. Who's going to know? Nobody's going to know. That's pretty good, right? Nobody's going to know. They're going to know. Nobody's. Anyways. Jesus realized at once that healing power had gone out from him. And he turned around. Could you imagine just Jesus like whipping around, making eye contact with you and saying, who touched my robe? But I don't think he was aggressive. I think it's more like, who, who, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, because they were just awesome. Look at this crowd pressing around you. How can you even ask who touched you? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. Come on. When Jesus shows up, everything changes. But what about Jairus? Did you forget about him? This is all happening in the middle of Jairus panicking, going, let's go. Stop. Who cares who touched your robe? Who cares? She's healed. It's fine. Still needing healing. The panic is settling. Did you forget about him just like I forgot? I'm so excited about the woman with the issue of blood, what Jesus is doing right now, that Jairus is like, come on. But just as Jesus was finishing speaking to the woman, Messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now.
So that panic urgency just kind of drains. I can imagine he just changed color in a moment in shock. There's no use troubling the teacher now. You know what I think Jairus got in that situation? Bad advice. There's no use troubling the teacher now. As if Jesus was confined. As if Jesus lived within the normal parameters of humanity. As if the person who could perform a supernatural miracle without even trying as he's walking down the street was limited by time or space. You know what Jairus got? He got some bad advice. There's no use troubling the teacher now. There's no use now. You know, it's too late now. There's no way Jesus could do that now. Listen, church, listen, we're never going to get a church building. It's fine because in our human ability, we can't make it happen in ourselves. Yeah, that's because I forgot to leave some room for Jesus. There's no use troubling the teacher now. I just wonder if there's a few people in this room that in your life you're surrounded by one or two people who would say, listen, there's no use bothering Jesus now. There's no use bothering to ask him if he could help you with your marriage because it's too late now. It's too late now. There's no use asking if he could heal you. There's there's no, it's too late now. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hold on. I know what I read earlier. It says that he is the supreme authority over everything in the heaven and on earth and he spoke it into existence that everything was created through him, by him, and for him. So I think he knows what he's doing and how to use it. It says he's the visible image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1 says that all of the qualities of God the Father are expressed through the Son, Jesus. So I'm just here to tell you today, if somebody said there's no use bothering Jesus with your situation, that person that you're walking with doesn't know Jesus. Or they do, but they don't know him in this way yet. But Jesus overheard them. Uh Uh-oh. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. I don't know who's in the room today, but the words of Jesus are the same yesterday, today, and forever. I just need to remind you, don't be afraid, just have faith. Don't be afraid, but that's not enough. Don't be afraid, just have faith. And Jesus stopped the crowd He wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. And he went inside and he asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead. She's only asleep. You know what they did? Verse 40, the crowd laughed at him. They laughed. Can I just ask you this question? In this season, in this chapter of your life, who are you listening to? What's the voice that you hear? Is it the voice of the good shepherd Jesus who calls you forward and says, listen, I love you with an everlasting love. I'm going to walk you through this and I love you and I want to take care of you and there's hope and there's healing and there's life if you walk with me. 
Or are you listening to the voice of the one that says, don't bother the teacher, it's too late now? Are you listening to the voice of the mocker that says, I can't believe that you would even trust in in, in a belief system where, where you believe that Jesus could do something? Don't you know all of the things that are happening right now? And so what did Jesus do? He just says, listen, it's time for you to leave. So he kicked him out. And he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kayum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Overwhelmed and totally amazed. I call that awe and wonder. They were filled with awe and wonder. And Jesus gave them some strict orders not to tell anybody what had happened. Then he asked them, he's like, can somebody get her a snack? And every parent in the room over summer is like, amen. Get the kids a snack, because apparently they need four more. Lunch was six minutes ago. Somebody get the kids a snack. So when you think of Jesus, who is he to you? Is he a good idea? Maybe he's a moral compass? Good teacher? Or is he the king of the universe, the king of your heart, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords? the one who speaks the universe into existence and the one who holds the world in his hands. Who is Jesus to you? If you have a Bible, we're going to flip over to Revelation. Because it's just not a Sunday unless it gets spicy in Revelation. Dr. Daryl Johnson is um, a professor. He's retired now. He was a professor at Regent in Vancouver. He was a contemporary of Eugene Peterson who wrote the message. Uh, He is one of the most brilliant minds, theological minds. His undergrad is in like uh, aerospace engineering and advanced mathematics. And then he went on to study theology. Brilliant mind and probably one of the most brilliant minds and kindest people that I've ever had the privilege of meeting. And he would suggest that the book of Revelation is written using the chiastic method. Come on, just turn to somebody and say, chiastic method. Come on, that's an exciting thing to learn on a Sunday. So what's a chiastic method? A chiastic method uh, speaks to the mindset of the writer at the time. See, in North America, we're very linear. In Western society, we're very linear, right? One, two, three, four. Points A, B, C, D. We like to just move in like a direction. We start at the beginning and we finish at the end. But that wasn't so much the mindset or the mentality uh, of many of the writers of scripture and people who lived. There was just a different rhythm or flow to life. And so as we begin to understand that, we also begin to understand that there was a different rhythm and flow to their writing. So Dr. Johnson would suggest that the the book of Revelation was written using the chiastic method, which means uh, starting at chapter one, there is point A, But then going to the end of the book, there is point 
sorry, there's point one, and then at the, starting at the end is point one B. So it's one A and one B, and they would move towards each other, meaning that the whole book builds up to a climax actually right in the center of the book so that the central idea or the central thought is found in the middle, not at the end. He would also suggest that the book of Revelation holds a discipleship, central discipleship text, and that central discipleship text, where the heart of the gospel is found in Revelation chapter 12, and we're gonna dial in on verse 11. It says, and they defeated him by the blood of the lamb, and by their testimony, and they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. That is the chiastic center, the gospel center of the book of Revelation. Some translations said, and they defeated him, him being the evil one, the enemy of your souls, the accuser, Satan himself, they defeated him by the blood of the lamb, by what Jesus did on the cross, and by the word of their testimony. That as the stories were told, that it began to change things and reshape things. And you're like, well, how could my story, how could somebody's, how could, how could there be defeat in just the word of a testimony? Think about the next phrase. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. They were not, they did not live in fear of what might happen to them because of what was done by the blood of the Lamb. I think about our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. I can't stop thinking about them, in fact. Getting emails and reports of Christians and believers that are prepared to meet Jesus in the next two weeks. Many of them actually felt so secure that they changed their passport status. There was a religion line on their passport status to Christian. So the government knows their name, that they know where they live. But the amazing thing is they're unwavering. Why? Because Jesus did something. He did something so deep. He changed their life in their heart, in their mindset, in their family. He changed everything. And they said, you know, I cannot turn my back on the one who has changed everything. I yearn to have a kind of faith that looks like that. I pray that I never have to be in a situation like that. But you know what it looks like in 21st century Western Canada is they did not love their reputation so much. Because what's our lives? It's, well, it's my name, it's my honor, it's my reputation, it's gonna hurt my personal brand. Nah. Jesus is never gonna hurt your personal brand. He's gonna transform it. He's gonna change it but I'm not afraid and I'm not ashamed. They overcame by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Let me just tell you this, and then we'll pass it back. The way that Jesus is working in your life or wants to work in your life can literally change somebody else's life but it changes it when it's told. That's what it means when they say the word of their testimony. They said, did you know that this is what Jesus did in my life? What you're going through is not all that dissimilar to what somebody else is going through, either in this room or in your social circle or in the office or at school. 
The difference is you're walking through it with Jesus. I want to show you something in scripture. I want to show you this at work. Are you still with me? We'll go to Mark 6. We'll start at verse 53. And I have to admit, I only saw one of these and then I realized there was two in the same pasture, pasture, passage. After they crossed the lake, they landed at Genesaret. They brought the boat to shore and they climbed out. The people recognized Jesus at once and they ran throughout the whole area, carrying sick people on mats to wherever they heard Jesus was. Wherever he went in villages, cities, or the countryside, they brought the sick people and the sick out to the marketplaces and they begged him, listen to this, they begged him to let the sick touch at least the fringe of his robe and all who touched him were healed. So the woman with the issue of blood who reached out and touched the hem of the robe of Jesus' garment not only changes our lives because of her story in scripture, but she changed the way that people came to and approached Jesus. She changed the way that people were healed. My question is, who told them? Who told them that if you just reach out and touch the hem of the robe that everything changes? Come on, the people of God, the people that were present, the people who saw Jesus at work, the woman who was healed, the person who was set free, that's who told them. Who told them? Who's going to tell them? You're going to tell them, and I'm going to tell them. And when you tell them how Jesus changes, transform your life, all of a sudden it's going to change the way that they see Jesus, and it's going to change the way that they approach him, and it's going to change the level of faith that they may have because they know you, they knew where you were, they know where you are, and that changes everything. Jesus changes everything. But it wasn't just the woman with the issue of blood. Did you notice it a little bit earlier? It says they ran throughout the whole area carrying sick people on mats. They remembered they heard about, somebody told the story of the four friends who had the courage to put their friend on a mat, carry him to Jesus, cut the roof open. Your freedom, your healing, your wholeness, your restoration can literally be the jumping off point for somebody else's healing, freedom, and restoration. Your story it's not insignificant, it's meaningful. Your story, it's not a mistake, it's not an accident, it's not something to be hidden, it's something to be shared because there is hope that's found when they see that Jesus can work in you because you're normal to them, you're loved by them. I wonder what might happen if we started freely communicating or sharing the things that Jesus is doing in our lives, I wonder if it might not just have a ripple effect to the people that are around you as they see the power of God at work in your life. Well, thank you so much for tuning into the Saints Church podcast. It's been awesome having you. If you'd like to learn more, you can head to our website at saintschurch.ca for Sunday service info or more online content. Other than that, we look forward to seeing you next week on the Saints Journey Podcast. Have a good one.